Great to see you. It's great that we can be here. Uh, we are continuing our series, as Catherine uh, mentioned there, the Not a Fan series. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 7, verses 36, and uh, we will read from there. Luke chapter 7. Verses 36, and we'll read through to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him, that being Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Uh, Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I have entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, Her her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. We thank you for your word and what it says to us. We thank you that we can come and worship you. And we pray that in our hearing, in our listening, in our uh, prayer, understanding uh, this morning, may uh, we worship you even more because of it. Uh, Lord, we, yeah, we ask that you uh, show us uh, that which we, that which you want to show us this morning, uh, through your word, and uh, through uh, this message, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I'm I'm not sure whether you're aware of this or not, but when a baby is born, it cries a lot. I've had three of them. Some have had more here, I know, some have had less. But a baby has no other way to communicate, does it, than, than cry. 
and to say what it, what it needs and, and what it wants. And so a baby cries a lot sometimes. And when, when my kids were babies, uh, I wouldn't always quite know what that cry was about, you know? I could, I could take an educated guess. Do they need a cuddle? We'll try that. Do they need a feed? I couldn't really do anything about that. Uh, uh, a bottle, of course. Uh, um, and and do, they, do they need their nappy change? You know, I, I couldn't tell that they were cries. But Jen, my wife, well, after a very short period of time, seemed to be able to intuitively pick up what one of our kids needed. You know, she would, she would listen to that cry and she'd say, yeah, she needs, she needs a feed, so it's feed time. Or, oh, she needs a nap, so it was nap. So that cry seems to be a, a nap time. And uh, I think one of them was sort of like, oh, she needs, she needs a nappy change and I think she wants Daddy to do it. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit sussed about that one. But... Perhaps you've been in a room, anyway, if, uh, if this does not resonate with you, um, where, where there is a baby that is quite fussy. And so the maternal types get around and, uh, and try to settle, but no one settles like the mum. And so when mum comes in and the little one hears the voice and feels the touch, the fussiness subsides. Because there is an intimate and a intuitive connection, isn't there, between a mother and a baby. It is almost the most intimate relationship, that between a mother and a child. And the mum is able to understand and know her child's needs and her child's wants, like almost like, like no one else, uh, really. And in Luke chapter 7, uh, that passage that we've just read, we come uh, here and read of an encounter between two people, one that shows someone relating to Jesus in a way that is, that is intimate, that a way that seems to be a, a connection with them. And then there is shown someone else whose connection is not quite intimate. It's, it's, it's more, um, there's something, there's a barrier between, between them. For both know Jesus, uh, both know Jesus here, the Pharisee and this this woman, but both relate to him uh, in different ways. Jesus is invited to uh, this Pharisee, this this Simon the Pharisee's house, and Simon Simon doesn't do what is is customary uh, when inviting a guest to their house. He, 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 He doesn't do what is what is respectable hospitality in first century uh, culture there in Israel. Uh, perhaps he knows a little bit of Jesus' reputation. He's from the Pharisee group, so maybe he looks negatively upon him and he's just got him coming around for dinner or something, not too fond of him. Uh, but for Simon, he doesn't give a welcoming kiss. He doesn't um, you know, wash his feet. He doesn't anoint his head with oil. doesn't wash his feet. He's, he, instead, Jesus is sort of found eating there, um, you know, with no fanfare, just amongst others, um, but also with an uninvited guest. And as Luke tells us, this uninvited 
a woman has entered the room and is known publicly as a sinner. We don't, we aren't, na- the particular sin is not named. I think we could probably presume uh, something uh, of it. Uh, she's known as a woman of ill repute. But she comes weeping and she comes crying to Jesus. She falls at Jesus' feet. Her, hair, uh, her tears drip over his feet and seem to wash them. They must be dirty and stinky feet. Think about these like leather sandals that have been trudging through muddy paths and you know where the horses and donkeys do their business. You know this is this is dirty, stinky feet. A very dishonourable kind of place to sit and and touch and weep over. And she would have expected them to be clean because she would have expected Simon, who was the host of the the dinner to actually clean his feet as well. But she undoes her hair and wipes them clean in the process and begins to kiss them and cries over, uh, cries over Jesus and shows her brokenness, pours this perfume over him too. And I, I show this picture because I think there's a few, I mean, there's a few issues with it. I don't think Jesus was that white when he was there in the first century, but it shows there, this is a depiction from the 16th century, of, of Jesus facing certain Pharisees there on the left. And you can tell that in their faces, if you can hopefully see it from where you are, there is sort of anger or, or, or certain unsuredness between the Pharisees and between Jesus. And there is that woman uh, below kissing Jesus' feet, showing the connection that they have. I think that gives us a visual image not exactly what was going on at that particular time, but gives an image to us, doesn't it, of, of the picture that we get of this story. And we see the two different approaches, the two different approaches of encountering Jesus. They, they encounter him in different ways. Simon, here the Pharisee, he knows Jesus, but he doesn't seem that interested in him. He's not really caring for him, not really showing him much hospitality. Um, And then there's this woman who shows great respect, great care, great love for Jesus through her actions and through this expression of intimacy, this connection that she has with him. And so it's this idea or theme of intimacy that we're going to explore over the next uh, few moments this morning. Uh, Because we see in Scripture, in this woman's example, a picture of how God knows us. A picture of how God wants us to know him. A picture that is uh, that of, of, of an intimate relationship, an intimate connection, an expression uh, of love and care and kindness toward us. And so first point this morning is God, God wants to know us intimately. And probably the best biblical word for intimacy is the word no. It's first used uh, in the context of relationships in Genesis 4 verse 1. And uh, the way Genesis 4 verse 1 is rendered or, or translated from its original is that Adam knew his wife Eve. And it's a Hebrew word for no. And this Hebrew word for no is, is called yada. Right? Yada, yada, yada. Yeah? Yada. <laughs> There's the Seinfeld episode about that. Does anyone remember that? Anyway, the definition of yada is to know or be known. Know or be known 
completely, completely or wholly. And so the, the trans, often the translations of the Bible will put this into context for us so that we know explicitly what they're talking about. And so your Bible may say, Adam lay with his wife Eve rather than Adam knew his wife Eve. And so you get the picture, the context for Yada when it is first used is this intimate connection. And we don't want to brush past this because it, it's not just a, a, a yada, yada, yada moment, you know, blah, 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 blah. But it, there's a connection going on here between husband and wife and it's not necessarily just about their sex life. It is actually speaking more about more than that. It's a connection that speaks of a faithful covenant, a connection that speaks of intimacy, of, of a spiritual bond, of a faithfulness to one another, um, of a covenant promise, showing support, showing care, showing love, kindness, comfort, friendship, service to one another, those kinds of things. It's, it's about knowing and being known in all aspects of our heart and our soul. And so this, this use of this Hebrew word is significant because there are other words that could have been used for you know, the physical act of sex or for procreation. There are other Hebrew words that could have been used, but, but it is bringing this emphasis on intimacy being known, they're known wholly uh, here, there in, in Genesis. Perhaps an example for us this morning might be when you observe uh, newer or fresher couples versus older couples who have been together for many, many years. The other week, in between lockdowns, Jen and I took the opportunity to actually go out for dinner and there we observed next to us uh, obviously a couple that was out on their first couple of dates, right? They were chatting pretty constantly. They were eyes for, every, uh, for each other. They weren't looking around the room at all, um, not really bothered around, you know, what was going on in the rest of the restaurant, but they were focused, making jokes together. So, you know, maybe they were laughing at the jokes or they were just fake laughing at the jokes. They were, they were certainly into each other and checking out what was going on. But then if you... If you take the time, you know, on the other side of that, you take the time to observe perhaps an older couple at, at a cafe or, um, you know, and I mean those who have been together a long time, like, like decades long, you know, some of, some of you here, uh, I won't observe you from here, um, but, but they, they sit and they enjoy one another's company and in doing so they, they sit there doing whatever they do together and they, they don't speak. There's like a silence. And from an outsider's point of view, you, you could look at it and say, gee, there's a problem there, isn't there? No one's talking. Why are they not talking? Oh, a few chuckles. Yeah, I'm naming a few here. Yeah. Uh, but what is really happening, isn't there, is that there is a connection going on in the silence. They communicate in the silence. Just being together is enough for a connection, for, for intimacy, for an intimate bond as they know each other, they yada each other, we could say, they, they know each other and so they're happy in silence. Like, it, it, it's fine. There's, there's a communication and connection going on even when they're not eyes focused on each other and intimate like a couple of first dates. So when we trace this 
I suppose this usage of this, this word through the Old Testament, we find that over and over and over again it is used to describe God's relationship to us. This word yada is a word used to describe how God uh, knows us, wants to know us and wants us to know, know him. This intimate connection and bond, the same word, the same uh, connection is used as to describe for Adam and Eve and a, a husband and wife is described as God, the kind of relationship God wants of you and me. And in our passage in Luke 7, we see a stark difference between the relationship that Simon the Pharisee has with Jesus and with this woman. Simon may know Jesus, but there certainly isn't any heartfelt connection going on. There's no intimate bond or care or service towards Jesus. But then we read of the act of intimacy that this woman shows and we see the the complete opposite, the complete opposite. And so think about your relationship with Jesus. Is it an intimate relationship, a relationship where you have, you know, it's not just a once a week date here on Sunday or when you listen to this sermon online. It's not a couple of times a week when you, you just you pray and, and read the Bible and on you go with your day. Now, our relationship with Jesus is not some sort of casual encounter. It's, it's about a yada, a deep knowing, a deep intimacy, a deep connection with, with Jesus, with, with God that is, is constant. King David uses this term yada five times to de- describe how God, uses, uh, God knows us in Psalm 139. He says, O oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home, you know everything I do. You know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. You know, you know, you know. David speaks to God in an intimate way as someone who has that intimate connection with God. You know how I feel, how I hurt, what I desire, you know what I am even thinking. And so God knows us deeply and wants us to know him deeply and wholly in a similar way. God wants us to know him. It is quite uh, amazing to think that God the creator of heaven and earth wants a relationship with us and wants to know us. That Just ponder that for a moment and be stunned. But he has opened up an invitation for us and said, I want you to come and be known by me and you know me more closely than we could ever imagine, more closely than any other relationship. Come and I want our souls to be intertwined and mingled together that we may know one another deeply and wholly. 
And God often says these things through scripture. And uh, sometimes it sounds poetic, uh, even like a love letter to his people. If you've ever dipped into the Song of Songs in the Old Testament, you will see that this is uh, the way God speaks of our relationship is, is of an intimate nature between him and his creation. The opening verses of Song of Songs. Let, me kiss me, uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Perhaps we blush to think that the Bible has words such as this. We might shy away from it because it speaks of such vulnerability and openness. We have a hard time often thinking about a relationship in terms of intimacy, like how to deal with intimacy it might even be hard to say the word for it, for us. It's not something that we, 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 we talk about often. And it's not surprising that when, uh, though uh, the, one of the most common responses to intimacy, I suppose, is, is fear. You know, many people fear intimacy because it requires an openness and a vulnerability. And, and it often comes, it often comes with pain, doesn't it? Because so many people have experienced some sort of betrayal or pain or hurt, a crushing blow when they've opened up and been vulnerable to someone else. And then that other person lets them down or, or, or says something to someone else that was meant to be private. And, and it hurts. And so, that can therefore influence the way we go forward in, in our experiences and relationships going forward. And when we make ourselves vulnerable to God, we know that there are going to be things in our lives that we're not so proud of when we're standing before the living God. Think of this woman in, in Luke 7, a woman of ill repute, she knew she had sin in her life that made her unworthy to come into Jesus' presence. We know that we are unworthy to come in front of God's presence because we fall short. We know that God can look into our lives, find things that aren't particularly holy or that he, things that he doesn't condone. And so it makes sense that we might be afraid or that we might be afraid of this vulnerability of coming before God and, and opening up to him. But followers know that there's so much more gained from, being, from an intimate relationship with God because we know that he is there with us through any pain and he is there to, to comfort and to care and to love us. And that comfort, knowing that God is with us, well, that can only come through an intimate relationship with God. And so that is why fans choose, uh, fans choose knowledge and followers choose to embrace intimacy 
This is the connection with our series at the moment. That fans choose knowledge and followers embrace an intimate relationship with God. In church, we often fail to embrace this kind of intimacy with Jesus. Let's be honest. Instead, we have a system often that is focused very much on knowledge and on learning, not unlike Simon and the other Pharisees, very much focused on learning. Our default setting is almost knowledge rather than intimacy. If we think about it for a little while, you know, we have, we have Bible studies, and we go and we work through the Bible, set questions verse by verse, word by word. We have sermons that are often more about knowledge than are practical, obviously not at RBC, but elsewhere, you know. Yeah. No, let's be honest, that can happen. We have Christian schools and colleges set up for learning all over the world and also for learning in the study of God and theology and the Bible and exegesis and Greek and Hebrew and all these kinds of things. And perhaps even if we think of our kids, we do it to our kids. They have Sunday school and we teach them stories of the Bible and taught lessons, assign Bible verses, off they go uh, to, to memorise them and, and stuff like that. Now, don't get me wrong, these, studying and learning from God's word is invaluable, okay? Don't get me wrong at all on this point. These are good things, these are great things. You won't find anyone more positive about those things. Um, And obviously Jesus referenced and read and studied and knew the Old Testament scriptures like no one else. Uh, In some ways we almost need more of it because of the rate of biblical illiteracy today. But what, the point I'm trying to make is that we don't want to make good things into ultimate things. Right? We don't want to make these good things into ultimate things. We can't expect knowledge to replace the intimate relationship with knowing God. Can't expect the knowledge to replace intimacy, even though we often try to do so. Because we try to substitute knowledge for intimacy because knowledge is so much easier. We don't have to be vulnerable. We don't have to be open. We don't have to expose our heart. It's easy for us to say, well, I know Jesus and I know that part of the Bible and, yeah, that's what it says and that's what it means, but am I putting that into practice? That, That is a question for us all. And that, I think, is where we find Simon the Pharisee. He knew a lot about Jesus. He, he would have known the Old Testament scriptures on like, like, like what? Like, like, like he would have known, uh, he would have known them well. Let's just go with that. <laughs> <laughs> he would have learned them from his young age. He would have gone through their system to, to become one of the, one of the Pharisees and, and he would have known and studied uh, the, the laws and, and the, the writings of the Old Testament uh, daily, no doubt, and would have memorised much of it. Uh, but we see that Simon calls Jesus a teacher, you know, emphasising that he's interested in knowing or, or recognising the, the learning that Jesus can give him. He's not opening up to Jesus. He, 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 he also sees what Jesus is does, or what this woman does for Jesus and, and he can see that it's embarrassing and dishonourable uh, 
in, in what she is doing. And so in Luke, 30, uh, Luke 7 verse 39, we read that when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. But Jesus, who knew uh, Simon's thoughts, answered him, Look, I came into your house. You did not give me a kiss, not even on the hand. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You gave me nothing to wash my feet with. She is washing my feet with tears. You gave me no olive oil for my head, but she has given me perfume for my feet. People can see the brokenness of this woman right in front of them. And then Jesus turns to her and says, Go in peace, your sins are forgiven. Simon brought Jesus to this meal, but all he really wanted was knowledge. He wanted to keep things shallow, define the relationship by what he did not do, not wash Jesus' feet, not give him a welcoming kiss, not pour him with oil, anoint his head with oil and clean his face. But this woman who was willing to, to open up to Jesus, to come into the presence of, of no doubt many other men and, and dishonour herself in what would have been the, the culture of the time and been known as a, as a sinner. She made herself vulnerable and totally was willing to, to come up and let Jesus also know her. And so the challenge for us this morning is whether we will let Jesus know us, isn't it? Will we let Jesus know us? Like, like not know us, but like know us wholly, fully. Will you let Jesus know you? Will you embrace that close and intimate covenant promise relationship with him? That's really the, the question of the morning. And that's for, for you to assess in your own heart, in your own mind. Because with an intimate relationship comes forgiveness, comes yada as well, a knowing, something that only followers can truly experience. And we're going to move into a time of communion in a moment. I'm going to pray. And perhaps I'd encourage you to take that time to contemplate, reflect on those questions and this passage. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you know us, that you know us wholly, you know us fully, you know us when we sit down, when we stand up, when we go about our day, you know our thoughts and our attitudes, you know our heart. And Lord, that that is a rather exposing, rather a sense of fear perhaps or a sense of vulnerability in that. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we... We pray that you will move our hearts and draw our hearts towards you in being known and and us knowing you in this whole and intimate way. Lord, we thank you uh, uh, for your scripture and for the truth of of this story and the life of Jesus. Lord, help us to, to reflect now on our relationship with you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.